welcome to Careers in Discovery, where you'll meet scientists who've forged outstanding careers in biotech and hear about what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by Singular, building brilliant biotechs. Orla Cunningham is the Chief Scientific Officer of Granular Therapeutics and Ultrahuman 8, companies developing novel single antibody therapies for a range of diseases. Orla talked to us about her fascinating career to date, as well as the therapeutic potential of mast cells, how to get the best from your CRO partners, and why communication is the most important skill scientists must develop. This week on Careers in Discovery, I'm really pleased to be joined by Orla Cunningham. Orla, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. Fantastic to see you. Um, So Orla, we always start by talking a little bit about what you're up to now. And you're involved in multiple things, somewhat related. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit about granular therapeutics and ultra human eight and how that all works for you. and, And give us give us the 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 sort of overview of what you're up to at the minute. Sure. So I I actually started with both companies um, around the same time. I actually left a a position in Pfizer during the pandemic Mm -hmm. back in December, um, two and a half years ago now. Um, And it was really through conversations with an ex-colleague of mine, um, Johnny Finley, who I believe has actually been on the been on the show. Um, We were very close colleagues across many, many years, probably about 10 or 11 years in Pfizer and he left the company um, before me to establish um, a series of antibody therapeutic companies um, all VC funded um, and initially set up to be single asset so I was always very much in touch with what he was doing and excited at some of the progress he was making I mean initially he set up tons of companies all based around single antibodies and you know some fell by the wayside some were becoming quite successful and and you know getting quite you know getting quite busy and difficult for a couple of people on their own to manage so yeah. I, I stayed in touch and I was really excited at the opportunity I suppose to be much more involved in in every aspect of therapeutic development I think from my role in Pfizer I was leading an antibody discovery and technology team and um, we were touching across all therapeutic areas within Pfizer but with the unique I suppose and very specific role of antibody engineering so mm-hmm. I always felt we were creating these fabulous assets but they were kind of moving on to different teams within the organization and you know very much losing touch moving back to the next program and the next project and not really being part of the development of those molecules and and really driving the efforts to to bring them to patients and being having the opportunity I suppose to be a champion for those individual programs as they move forward so with granular and ultra human aid these are two again single asset companies um Granular is very much focused on the development of next generation therapeutics for mast cell targeting, particularly. Um, we're very interested in the in the sort of pleiotropic role of uh, mast cells as as sort of master um, immune cells within mm-hmm. uh, any different chronic inflammatory and allergic conditions. Um, so there we started with one antibody with the very specific aim of, of generating a bispecific molecule that could modulate, selectively modulate mast cell function and yeah. steer clear of other, you know, hemopoietic stem cells, for example, and, and other immune cells that um, we really don't want to be targeting. Um, as the programs have developed, I suppose we we now have actually two very exciting molecules moving forward. Um, with ultrahuman 8, it's very different. It's um, immune oncology. 
Um, it's a very, very interesting story where the, the kind of lead asset came from originally um, and sort of developed, I suppose, from um, this idea, I suppose, of, of the idea, I suppose, that the, the, the tenet of, of monoclonal antibodies being uniquely specific for target. And one of the things that myself and Johnny had been working on while we were at Pfizer was this idea that actually therapeutic antibodies are not, you know, uniquely specific. And I think that that idea um, you know, is very well known in the area of diagnostic antibodies, where for many, many years, people that sell antibodies are be, have been doing a lot of QC validation and showing that actually a lot of these antibodies are pointing to one, more than one target. So mm -hmm. it turned out that this antibody, um, that the ultra human age lead antibody um, came out of at this observation. It's an anti-PD-1 antibody originally um, that is being used to dose patients, you know, globally um, and very successfully. But, but you know, because there are so many PD-1 molecules in the clinic now, mm -hmm. we know that um, there's a very specific adverse event profile associated with PD-1 targeting. Um, and what this antibody was showing up is actually a, a secondary phenotype. So a lot of dose patients were turning up with this spontaneous hemangioma, which we thought was very interesting. And Johnny and the guys went on to show that this was actually related to an off-target event and okay. a, a clinically relevant off-target, um, secondary target. It turned out to be binding to the VEGF receptor 2 um, and not only binding, but actually agonizing that receptor. So you know, agonizing um, angiogenesis, if you like, which is not what we really want to do in the context of, 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 of tumor growth. And yeah. so the first step was clever antibody engineering to return it to be a PD-1 specific antibody. But then of course, you know, a lot of the really nice combination therapies that have been going on, combination trials in the clinic right now have been showing that actually one of the few synergy, you know, synergistic combinations turns out to be blocking you know, PD-1, PDL one signaling at the same time as blocking angiogenic pathways and combinations from Roche, you know, with Tocentric and, and Bevacizumab are actually showing really, really nice um, combinatorial efficacy. And they published a really nice paper last year that really went into, you know, the sort of biomarkers associated with that, that synergy. Right. So we thought, well, actually, this is a really nice combination. Could we go back and again, apply those ant antibody engineering principles and turn this, um, this this dual specific antibody into a beneficial thing and we actually flipped that VEGF or two agonism into an antagonist so okay. now we have this really nice and it's not even a bispecific it's a single antibody so none of this complex you know manufacturing that's associated with the with the generation of of, of um classical bispecific antibodies it's a single antibody and it antagonizes both of those pathways in what we believe is a very synergistic way so that's i mean my role i suppose and it's the same across both companies i mean on paper it's a 50 50 split but really it's just you know generation of all of the preclinical data that we need mm -hmm. um to move the assets forward and we're I, I guess i didn't mention but both companies are, are completely virtual so we are you know this is me this is my where I am, you know, talking from today is my is my office. Um, and really it's interacting with multiple different contract research organizations, yeah. collaborators to achieve all the experimental goals we need. So for for Ultra Human 8, we are very much, we have a, a lead molecule, we've done all of our initial you know, CMC assessments, we know it it, it produces um, and behaves very much like a, you know, a really nice antibody. We believe it's very, very developable. And we're at the next stage now of moving into a, a round of fundraising to help us launch that full CMC and, and GLP um, talks for the next stages. So for granular, I would say we are a little bit earlier. Um, we're mm -hmm. moving two lead assets in parallel. So a lot of work going on there. And 
you know, initially it was myself and Johnny and we have a, a chief operating officer, Jamie Coleman, who's involved in, in both companies as well as the many other things those two guys are doing <laughs> um, with granular because we're moving, you know, we have two assets. We, we are, um, we recently have expanded and brought on a new CEO um, and a new chief development officer. So we're at a really exciting stage of, of expansion. Mm. We have the funding that we need from our very generous um, backers at Medici um, and we're really moving forward there into formal CMC for our two our two lead assets. So yeah, it's been an absolute whirlwind, I would say, the last two and a half years. Um, <laughs> completely like, out of my comfort zone, I would say, for the vast majority of that yeah. time. Okay, yeah. okay, that's good to know. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about the the some of the science behind it, but um, before we do that, I suppose in some ways, sitting across these two companies, because they're single asset companies, is similar to managing a couple of different projects. But I, I would imagine there are extra things that come with them being two separate companies and, and extra elements to your role as, as a result of that. Is what What is it that's different about that? Because I think this virtual model is becoming more viable, right? And so then people can potentially get involved in different things at the same time. Yeah, I mean, completely. I think, you know, my, my experience... And I guess I've, I've always, um, I'm not one of these people who really knew from the very beginning what it was I wanted to do. I, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't even sure that science actually was, was you know, where I, I, I saw myself. So I've been a, a sort of a generalist, I would say, from the beginning. And I think when I took on the role from academia, I mean, I did a postdoc in cancer cell biology. And, and then I saw this opportunity to join what was a kind of a nascent um, research group originally with Wyeth. Um, mm in Dublin I was in in Italy doing my postdoc at the time and I thought it was a great opportunity to come back um at the time I would have probably classified myself as a biochemist by training yeah. with a little bit of cancer cell biology um and this role was very much antibody engineering and it took me a long time to feel comfortable and comfortable enough I suppose and proficient enough in in the technologies to call myself an antibody engineer I think finally after you know the acquisition by Pfizer and another probably 10 more years working as an antibody engineer. I, I, I kind of believed I had become an antibody engineer. I think what, what's very different in the role I have now is that, you know, I, I had a very specific technology role, I suppose, in thinking about what is the biology, what is the type of molecule we want to make, and then making that molecule to very specific, mm. you know, um, I suppose, characteristics, and then handing it on. And I think in, in, in these two companies now, you know, I have the role of 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 coordinating all of the activities. I think all of the preclinical in vitro assays that we need, all of the sort of early stage production manufacturability, um, thinking about you know where what are the disease indications we want to go after, what are the relevant in vivo models, thinking about how to start those CMC campaigns. You know, it's really thinking about interfacing with regulatory. I mean, all of these things that that you know I I would have had no interaction with or no contact mm -hmm. with. In a large organization, I think it has been it has been you know really fascinating, um, and I think really what has been I think the nicest thing for me is you know being an antibody engineer. I think it's 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 very there's so many things we can do now. I think making antibodies has become you know a really simple thing to do and right. so yeah. I think there's a big area that that we're missing you know we've always thought about how do we engineer specificity or affinity or you know and 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 a really you know I think we should be migrating much more towards you know we can do these things now so the, the big thing that's missing I think in things like 
you know, if we think about ultra humanation and um, oncology, you know, thinking about we can have a, a cytokine and we can add on a CD3 by specific T cell engager and let's on, add on a CD28 agonist into the mix. And all of these things, of course, you're adding efficacy and you're adding potency, but you're adding an incredible amount of, of tox. And that's right, something yes. that we haven't really got any better at at all. And with combination after combination, you know, that's something I think we really need to get better at ta- tackling. So I think mm-hmm. the exciting challenge in, in both of the companies that I'm working for, while there are differences at the stages they're at, I think the similarities they have is we want to do things that other people are already doing but we're not just thinking about potency we're thinking about that you know that real important balance between potency and toxicity and between site of action efficacy and systemic safety and so thinking about how to use all of that antibody engineering expertise i suppose to try and equally tackle both of those challenges in parallel yeah that makes sense and i suppose thinking thinking about the long-term regulatory requirements, tox requirements, all this kind of stuff from the beginning, I would imagine puts a different spin on how you conduct the early research as well and how you bring these programs through. It does. It also presents, I suppose, in itself, a number of different challenges because while, you know, the sort of in vivo models we have at our disposal have really significantly improved and, you know, everybody's working with really sophisticated, humanized mouse models now, I think the challenge that that we, of course, have is that because we're trying to look at both sites of action, so looking at human tumor, human immune system, we're also trying to think about normal physiological systemic functions. So we're thinking about where VEGF or is most important outside of the tumor, which is the vascular endothelium and critically important for many physiological functions. But we don't yet have a mouse that has human immune system, human Mm -hmm. plus human, you know, VEGF biology. So we want to do that. And that's one of the big challenges we have is is really thinking about how to translate from our kind of 3D co-culture systems into something a bit more sophisticated. I think there we have to start thinking in different ways. Well, PD-1, VEGF, or 2, these are pathways we understand. There's tons of clinical data that suggests that synergy is there, that it works for patients. So, you know, maybe there's a different way to get there without having to go through the hurdle of not very realistic, potentially not really translational in vivo models. So it's, mm. it's, it's a constant series of challenges, I think, um, that are, are really interesting. And I think while, you know, the the sort of biology between both companies is very different, I think the sort of challenges we have are, are, are kind of similar. And I think what's really critically important, and I think has been that the sort of guiding principle for me, the whole way along this pathway has been that there is never going to be a system that will answer the question yeah so we have to start to pick apart what are the different pieces and think about what's the biology or the assay or the model that will help us answer answer that piece of the story and of yeah. course in critical in bringing all of that together is convincing somebody in the conversation that it's okay to do that to pull mm-hmm. these pieces apart and answer these questions individually and build the story in that way that that builds confidence so in that way, I think another thing that has been really radically different from my time in, in pharma compared to this is really the mechanism of communication and the way of okay. telling the story um, is really different. I think, you know, the audience you're trying to convince is is really different. So, yes. Uh, yeah, that's that's been interesting too. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose, the, you know, there's always lots of audiences that you're trying to convince, right? Whatever context you're in, but they're probably slightly different. And I, And I suppose you know, one of the things I was interested in was 
um, your experience with moving to this virtual model and, and the differences between it? Because, I'm, you know, I'm sure that you used CROs at Pfizer and I, I'm sure that they do extensively as a company, but there's a lot of in-house resource as well, right? And um, that aspect of it is probably quite interesting in, in sort of making sure that the work you need done is being carried out in the right way by the CROs. And of course, the quality of CROs has improved massively over the last several years. And so that that will help. Um, but also, you know, you've got this fundraising element now to, to biotech, whereas I suppose you would need sponsorship for projects in a larger company. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a different uh, it's a different conversation, right? So just interested in your observations around that in terms of communicating, in terms of how this virtual model's worked for you and and the differences you've noticed in in moving to it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's definitely true. I think the difference, I think, within pharma is generally the way most companies operate, I suppose, it's a very matrix style where you have the biology experts who think this is a great target mm. and we think about what is the best way, you know, to... to um, to challenge that target or to start to explore that target in terms of, you know, what is a therapeutic modality we think that could be of most interest. And therein starts the first sort of restriction, if you like, because there may be IP reasons why, you know, this is their, this is our platform and we shall make this platform work irrespective of what the biology question is. Whereas I think in this way, we have, we're completely agnostic. We don't care what the platform is or it's like, what, what is the biology and when, what is the, the best way to interrogate? And I think mm -hmm. that's a really good example of that is, is what's happened at, at, at Granular is, you know, during the course of our explorations of our initial modality, which is a, as a bispecific antibody, we kind of realized that actually, you know, there's, there's other indications where part of this modality or part of this mechanism could work really, really well. And so we've really, you know, because of the sort of, you know, initial antibodies we were discovering, we realized actually there was ways to branch into different indications with right. a different type of modality, but using a lot of the lessons that we had learned. And so this kind of flexibility and, you know, this, this idea of being agnostic to a platform or being restrained by a specific IP, um, you know, you're able to think in a much more open-minded way, I think, about what, what target you want to challenge. And then again, you're not restricted by the tools that you have in-house. You can think mm -hmm. who's out there doing it, who are the people that, that can provide this service. And, yeah, and okay. again, it's this service and you can step in and then you can move away when you achieve that goal and move on to the next, you know, very, very quickly flipping between um, different service providers. But I think, I mean, critically, again, communication is is key. You know, if you're working with a CRO, I think, there's there's it's very easy to say well we know exactly what we want to do and to be prescriptive mm -hmm. and say we have all the knowledge you don't need the knowledge you just need to provide the service but of course you know for anybody to have a proper scientific engagement and to best utilize people's skills and technologies i think communicating the story is is really important and and we do that i think we we, we really try to do that very well from the beginning that yeah it's a project team. It's not a service. It's a collaboration. Um, and we really want to partner. I think with all of the, the CROs we've worked with, I mean, we've been very lucky. I think, you know, Johnny was at this game for a few years before I joined and, and already had a great, you know, kind of baseline of, of, of providers that we use for mm -hmm. team production. And, and like you say, I mean, that this quality of, 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 of scientists that is engaged in these kinds of services now is, is really you know, second to none. I think lots of people have come from big pharma have had yes. 
excellent training, a very, very experienced. And, and again, you know, coming out of that environment, want to have the ability to be a little bit more or a bit less restricted, I suppose, in, in how they're applying their specific skill sets. So, you know, communication, I think, is key in establishing that relationship early on, that it's a collaboration that, you know, people get so engaged in, in your project, they become part of the team. And, you know, so really, it's I found it a, a really, really easy model to work in. You know, I came yeah. with I suppose, certain preconceptions as to how it was going to be. And, and it's certainly, you know, my experience has been massively positive, I would say. Yeah. You know, no, because people are really expert in the services they're providing and are really open to having, you know, a really robust discussion and, and back and forth and collaboration about the steps to take to take yeah. next. So, yeah. yeah and I suppose great. if you if you're running a biotech company, there's only ever going to be so much demand, for example, to in-house have real deep expertise in, I don't know rat-based models of disease right whereas in a cro because you can provide that to lots of different you can really invest in developing people's yeah. expertise and they do it in all these different contexts and they bring that to the table i think i think potentially what where some companies fall down with using cro's is that they try too hard to protect maybe protect their ip which of course you've got to be careful about but um as you say don't bring them in as part of the team it's 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 yeah at arm's length and then of course you know without that context as you talked about earlier in terms of understanding the toxicity requirements early on um yeah. it's just going to be harder for them to do their job right? exactly and I mean also for me I mean I'm coming in and I'm I, it's okay if I'm engaging with somebody in terms of mm -hmm. antibody discovery or engineering I feel like I, I come from a pretty well informed and experienced yeah. position you know to, to think I know what what it is we need but there are many other situations where I'm reading the literature myself. I'm a complete newcomer. I'm coming with ideas, but I absolutely need people, experts mm. with experience to help me understand, well, actually, I don't think you should be doing this. This is this would be much, much more suited. So it's it's certainly a, a two-way street. And I think yeah. again, in both elements of that, you know, coming from a big organization where there are a lot of restrictions about what you can talk about and disclose. And and you know, it's it's very hard to have that kind of expansive discussion and 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 brainstorming and and really figuring out how best to collaborate um, yes. because information is restricted I think in in both directions and by being restricted in one direction of course you're making somebody else feel like they don't want to really share you're not creating yeah, of course. an open environment where that sharing it just comes naturally so I think it's been from that perspective it's been a very positive experience no absolutely and then before we talk a bit more about your career specifically, Ola, I, I wanted to pick up on, you talked about mast cells earlier um, and the the importance of them, the role that, that they seem to play uh, and the potential therapeutic potential of targeting them. Um, I've said potential too many times. <laughs> but, um, for those who might not be familiar, can you give us, without giving away the family secrets, obviously, just a, a introduction to that briefly? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it would be really nice. Um, we don't have any visuals here, but but certainly, you know, mast cell is at the center of, you know, that they, they release huge amounts of chemokines, cytokines, you know, digestive enzymes, it really just an explosion of, of, you know, stimulatory molecules, which go on to stimulate downstream um, any type of inflammatory cell you care to mention, you know, B cells and T cells and all sorts of, um, you know, really important downstream um, immune signals. And so, you know, 
there are pathways that of course i mean there are and, and mast cells the reality is we know very very little about mast cells i knew nothing about mast cells before mm-hmm. i started but it, you know traditionally in, historically in the literature there are two main types of you know connective tissue type mast cells and, and mucosal um there's been a really recent paper published by um Nicholas Gadenzio's team to suggest there are up to seven different subtypes of mast cells associated okay. with different organs and and they have very different you know potentially very different roles so you know obviously the classical IgE dependent signaling which is mediated through the FC epsilon receptor was thought to be the main trigger um and very important in allergic reactions mm. for example in, in triggering triggering mast cells But actually, we now know there are lots and lots of different stimuli that can trigger mast cells. And still not much is known about which specific indications those different triggers are important in outside of of, of allergy or classical allergic signaling pathways. So really, there's a lot more to be learned about mast cells and, 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 you know, how many different inflammatory conditions they may be involved in. But, you know, really interestingly, you know, outside of omalizumab, which is the classical, you know, IgE pathway targeting antibody that's been very, very successful um you know in 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 many allergic um um, disease indications there are a number of pathways that seem to be ige independent okay so thinking about you know how do we target mast cells agnostic of the signals you know individual signaling pathways and signaling pathways that may yet to be discovered can we Mm. Can we trigger the mast cell selectively? And there is a company that's doing it. I mean, there's some very exciting data emerging from the Celdex um, clinical trials using the anti an anti C kit antibody, and mm-hmm. they're you know initially looking in things like you know chronic urticaria, for example, which is you know patients can have spontaneous urticaria where they get you know angioedema and and, and hives and they don't really know what the trigger is in other patients. It might be induced by cold or by heat or right. so there are conditions where mast cells are known to be really, you know, heavily involved, but there are some indications that, you know, in things like, you know, atopic dermatitis and in, in asthma that actually mast cells may be actually really critically important. The problem is, you know, if you look at the cardinal genes for, for mast cells, it's, it's CKIT. Um, right. So how do we target CKIT in a way that is not going to target all of the other cell types that express CKIT, which is critical for survival and proliferation of, of many different cell types, including things like melanocytes. So CKIT mm-hmm. is heavily expressed in, in skin cells, olfactory receptors. Importantly, it's expressed through the development of and, and, and differentiation of hemopoietic stem cells. So, right. you know, things tar- targeting KIT can be you know, really quite dangerous in terms of thinking about neutropenia and thrombocytopenia and, 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 you know, taking out multiple white blood cell subsets. So our idea is trying to think about mechanisms that work for controlling mast cells, but doing so in a way that drives specificity to the mast cell and away yeah, from I see. other, other, um, you know, other blood cells and, and other expressing. Um, yeah, I see. And then, cells. so from, from what I understand from what you're saying, then if you can figure that out, then you can, then there's different ways in which you can control those mast cells, right? So you can target different conditions and different situations. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I think there's, there are many reasons, you know, again, mast cells are incredibly difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. And I, you know the, the the beauty of the, of the work that has been done most recently published most recently about different subtypes is is certainly there are contexts very many context specific um 
gene expression profiles, for example, for, for mast cells. And, you know, you take them out of the body and it's really, really difficult to recapitulate what might be relevant in vivo. So this idea of pulling apart a system and trying to figure out how to answer one piece of the puzzle has been of critical importance because yeah. there is a very small number. Actually, it's a, it's a really tiny community that that is expert in working with mast cells. So you can imagine finding a CRO that has expertise working with mast mm -hmm. cells has been you know it's been a a puzzle which is what got me interested in science in the first place you know solving yes. solving problems um what, what a fabulous link Ola, Ola, for us to talk about <laughs> your career <laughs> um no that's really interesting thank you for that um we've done a whistle stop tour through your career uh, mm -hmm. you briefly gave us an overview but actually, so you talked just then about solving puzzles as being where where the interest in science came from. Tell us a bit more about that. Why why science? Why biochemistry? Why drug discovery, drug development? Why this career for you? Yeah. Um, so I guess I mean I must have been interested in science in 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 high school. I mean I I, I did you know obviously moving into that kind of final cycle. You know we had to select preferred subjects and I was doing physics and biology and chemistry and maths and so obviously there there was some sort of interest there but I never I was never thinking about the next step and I, I never mm. have and, and while on paper I suppose it may look like I had a pretty normal you know development career development through science it certainly wasn't that way in my in my mind it was always <laughs> kind of one step at a time and I think yeah you know, I've, I've always been very lucky. I, I think my 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 parents had always just encouraged me to do something that I enjoyed, and and that's what I did. And so, you know, I was thinking about what to do, and I was definitely going to university because my brother was there and was having a great time. And I I thought mm -hmm. definitely this is something I wanted to do. And my kind of my first choices were all either English or you know science related. And I I always preferred the sort of biological sciences a little bit more. Um, and then my brother was ahead of me. It looks like I just copied him, um, but he was doing um, natural sciences in Trinity. This is, it's a long time ago now. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is when you were doing science. It was, it was science. There was very little, you know, it was so broad at the beginning and, and actually from being a really, you know, good academically, I think in, in high school, I went to university to do natural sciences and I was completely overwhelmed at the, the breadth right. of subject matter. And I didn't really do very well at all in my first couple of years. Um, but actually looking back, I think what was great about it, it was so broad. I mean, I think about students making decisions now and there are courses like you know, human genetics or structure mm -hmm. biology, or how how do you know at that stage of your career, you know, exactly what area of science you want to get involved yeah. in. So I'm very grateful that it was so broad. It gave me a really good feel for, you know, everything that was out there. And, and again, I, I just preferred, I, I was drawn more towards, you know, biological pathways, I suppose. Um, and I chose biochemistry for specialization. And obviously part of that was getting the opportunity to work in a lab. And mm -hmm. I loved being in the lab. And I had a great mentor there. I mean, it was it was kind of in between my um, my my second year of university and, and selecting biochemistry as my subject. And I got the opportunity to do a summer internship um, in the lab where ultimately I ended up doing my PhD. And it was it was just a great environment. I mean, really, mm. it's kind of for the first time, there was no hierarchy. You know, my 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 supervisor, we would all go for coffee, lots of PhD students, postdocs. And I was being exposed to that environment, I think, quite early on. And I just really loved it. You know, he just asked us random questions. And there was this real, you know, environment, I suppose, of open discussion. And, right. 
drawing things on napkins and all of that sort of stuff. And I, I decided definitely I loved being in the lab. I loved research. So that was the only decision I made. I wanted mm. to stay in the lab. Um, and, you know, after my finals, I hadn't even signed up for anything. I didn't have a master plan. There was no particular area of biochemistry I was interested in. I just liked asking questions and designing experiments to answer, try and answer those questions or at least build yes. up the story. So, I, I mean, it was after results, you know, everybody I'd celebrated, my supervisor sidled up and said, you know, have you thought about a PhD? And I, I kind of hadn't, but I said, it sounds like a good idea. Um, so I did that and it was really hardcore, you know, enzyme kinetics, um, mm -hmm. old fashioned, I suppose, biochemistry at the time. Um, and it was tough. I mean, it was really, really tough. It was, you know, yes. PCR hadn't been discovered that long before. And I was trying to clone this novel gene involved in heme degradation pathways. And, you know, it, it was a struggle. Um, and I, I guess it was a really good learning experience. Mm -hmm. Most of what I did, and I mean, this may be most of people's experience in science, you know, unless you're very lucky, most of the things I did didn't work. And of course, it's right. that idea yeah. of learning, you know, redesigning, retrying, um, and, and gradually, you know, building up um, building up, building up knowledge and 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 getting expert in in um, different techniques and you know trying trying out different things. So again, I mean, I was finished finishing up my PhD. I, I kind of knew I did not want to do any more enzyme kinetics. Mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and it was a real kind of turning point for me, I suppose, because I realized I had dedicated, you know, three and a half years to a PhD. I, I'm I'm a scientist, but I had no idea what I really wanted to do right. next. You know, and I, I didn't see myself in a, a purely academic role. I didn't see myself, you know, in that academic environment where you don't have the luxury unless you're, you know, in in, in at the top of your game and in a, in a really exciting hot field of science. You, you don't have the luxury of doing whatever you want to do. I mean, a lot of the time people seem to be struggling for for grants and, you know, mm -hmm. training students and you get your students trained up and they're doing fabulously well and then they leave you and, you know, you're constantly in this cycle of, of 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 competitive you know grants and I just thought it seemed like not the environment I I really wanted to be in yeah. and again the split often between teaching responsibilities and 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 research in the lab you know that that balance just didn't seem to be in the right direction for me mm -hmm. so I, I was struggling and uh, you know bizarrely at the time um the head of our department was doing um, a lot of exchanges with the University of Siena and the University of Florence. And there was a lot of Italian students coming over and, you know, people from our department had the opportunity to, to work over in, in Italy. And I thought, you know, I really like the Italian lifestyle and I was doing it. I'm very a, jealous of that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a night course, an Italian night course. I really okay. love language. And I just thought, you know, I've been in Trinity for my undergrad, for my PhD. It is time for me to leave and I had the opportunity to do a postdoc in, in Trinity, but I decided to um, to just go. And, you know, I asked around the department, does anybody have any contacts? I said, I might as well try and stay in science. Um, yes. And I mean, I just I, I just seemed to be, um, you know, just really lucky. Timing was right. One of our um, PIs in Trinity had a, a contact with um, 
a great cancer researcher over in Milan and he had just won this grant, this European grant, and I had the opportunity to go. So I just, I went and the contract was supposed to be for a year. Um, and again, it was really just really lucky timing. So this was a, a, a lab that was based on, on a hospital, San Rafaela Hospital in, in Milan. Um, it was a kind of a, you know, cancer cell biology program. We were looking at a, the urokinase receptor and trying to understand how it mediated you know, all of these pleiotropic functions, what were the interacting proteins, you know, what were the mutations responsible, are the amino acids responsible for mediating all mm. of these multiple different interactions, you know, it was a really involved project, but but at the time that the Italian Cancer Research Foundation were really trying to, you know, build this institute, which would bring together multiple different functions and, and core technologies with the idea of working together to find a cure for cancer. Right. So I really liked that idea, this broad goal, this this yes. you know, um, combined goal of a whole institute. And so they built this wonderful new facility um, in Milan and brought together all of these core technologies. I mean, it was the first time it was almost like a small company in a way, you know, they had expert microscopy, they had a sequencing facility, protein production, they had basically what was like a department store, you know, you'd go in the lift with your little basket and take <laughs> all of your buffers that were pre made. And you know, the environment for research was fantastic. And they had these huge, big open labs. So you didn't share, you know, you weren't not beside people from your group, you were working mm -hmm. with researchers from lots of different with lots of different core competencies and different skill sets. And from multiple different countries as well, which was a really great adventure. You know, they, they were really trying to, I suppose, you know, make cancer research within Italy less sort of insular and, and more global. And they were attracting students from all over Europe. And so it was a great time to be there. And, and it was a great opportunity to start to understand, I suppose, the strength of a team rather than individual research, because you yes. were getting all of these inputs and being exposed to all of these different technologies and different questions that other scientists were trying to solve from different angles. And so, you know, we took on a really, really broad project where we couldn't have done it. You know, we we ended up making, I don't can't remember how many amino acids were in this receptor, but something like 250 different single amino acid mutations that we made okay. in the context of multiple different cell lines. And, you know, we did tons of things that as, as a team, you know, we approached it as a team rather than trying to solve these problems as individual PhD or postdoc scientists. Mm -hmm. I guess that was my greatest lesson from my Italian experience, which was not one year. It ended up being five years. Yeah. <laughs> I, I loved it there and I, you know, kept looking for excuses to stay. So um, I think that, you know, was it was a fabulous experience, even outside of the science. I think just, you know, being in a completely different culture, learning to mm -hmm. meet people from, you know, diverse backgrounds and, and with diverse languages and, you know, overcoming some of those communication challenges, but also just simple things like trying to set up a bank account in a different right. language in a different country and simple yes. things that you think you know you don't really appreciate the value of them I suppose till you're outside of it um but I mean five years is a long time and again mm. I think you know thinking well what next am I going to live in Italy forever or you know and I, I I kind of felt like it was time for me to to move on after five years and you know it was back before everything was online and you know my dad was cutting out little advertisements from the newspaper and right, posting yes. over to Italy trying to get me to come home and one of them really <laughs> caught my eye which was this you know drug discovery company which was the staff because I mean I knew I knew at that stage I, I loved this team mm -hmm. involved. I really loved the power of 
you know, everything that we could harness as a team rather than than independent researchers. And, and so this opportunity, you know, Wyeth were setting up this drug discovery group in Dublin. Um, it was the opportunity to be there right at the beginning. It turns right. out, you know, I went to Boston for my interview because the group didn't exist. You know, they were setting it up from scratch and I was employee, ended up being employee number three. Um, I mean, I got the job. I, I I didn't even apply for, you know, the role that I got was not the job I applied for. Right. I ended up being recruited as a kind of head of assay development, um, you know, and, and looking at my, you know, my ex- my experience to that to that point, that really wasn't my my core skill set, mm-hmm. I, I think. But, you know, it certainly was up for it sounded like a great opportunity. I got to see yes. the labs in, in, in Boston. I mean, they were amazing, you know, the sort of technologies and equipment and automation that was that was there at, at their disposal. I just thought it looked like a really something completely different, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And again, it really suited me because I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't somebody that had a very specific field of research or all along it had been just about what is available to me to answer this question. And I thought this looked like a, it's such a, a great opportunity because again, it was kind of a, you know, technology core providing these this expertise and this problem solving capability to all of the different therapeutic units, you know, inflammation yeah. technology, cardiology, oncology, you know, so, so really potential to to potential to you know broadly impact multiple different um multiple different pathways but in, mm-hmm. in the same way addressing every challenge as, as a series of, of of questions um so that was a, a massive experience because really it was going from nothing from an empty lab to trying to establish a drug discovery team and yes. hiring people and you know building the team and training and learning how to use automation for the first time and yeah that was a that was a steep, steep learning curve. And of course, the transition from academia to, to industry was, you know, was something completely new. But I suppose that's when I really realized the years in Italy were were, were valuable in, in many other ways other than the mm-hmm. science, because that communication piece was so important in, in trying to, you know, get people on our side. I suppose we were this yes. little group that existed in Dublin. You know, why? When the rest of the team were all based over in the U.S., mostly on the East Coast, Um and and probably everybody wondering well, what, what you know why why do we need this team what are they for what is their role and you know really trying to win people over I suppose and establish the group as a really valuable part yeah. of the organization and and you know everything was you know over polycoms and you know this was before the pandemic yes. where everybody got used to that way of yeah, working of course. our daily life back then and so yeah I mean the, that that kind of element of communication and 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 being able to you know, being able to um, advocate, I suppose, on the behalf of your team. I think that 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 was a really important um, skill set. So it was super exciting time. I mean, great opportunity landed on my feet completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the timing. And uh, yeah, I stayed there for a very long time. <laughs> 14 years in total between Wyatt. Years. I started in 2006 with Wyatt as a principal scientist um, and left. They, we were acquired by Pfizer in 2009. Yes. Um, and I, I I left, you know, combined 14 years later um, and went through the ranks, you know, to associate director, manager mm-hmm. of the team and then on to senior director of the group, leading the group in, in, in Dublin. I mean, at that time, I suppose when I left, we were probably in the range of maybe 25, 30 people. Um, and we survived, you know, through all of the change, yes. yeah. all of the reorgs and restructuring and acquisitions. And so, yeah, it was um, it was an adventure. <laughs> and I suppose being in that um, 
given the unique context of the group that you were working in, I suppose, within the company, that probably set you up pretty well for life in biotech compared to perhaps if you'd just been based in Boston or if yeah. you'd gone and worked for AstraZeneca in Cambridge or, you know, um, been more of a, um, been closer to the center of the organization. Yeah. Um, as you said, you know, having to almost justify your existence and and show value and and figure out what people need from you and how you can um, how you can contribute, yeah, works pretty well, I guess, in terms of then thinking about okay, well, how are we going to go and raise money and how are we going to engage with patients and, yeah. and all the things that you need to do yeah. in a biotech company. Yeah, I mean, no, no question, it was a very unique situation because you know while we were part of a massive organization we were kind of operating in a way like a like a small biotech because yeah. we were so geographically removed from the rest of the the rest of the team and we were interacting across all of the different therapeutic units i mean there was communication streams in in multiple different directions plus we were a small research group that was based at a large manufacturing site. So right. when we were established initially, we were set up on a university campus, which was a great time. And of course, many of the team, because there's no, there was no history of drug discovery and development in Ireland. So there was no, no nobody that was trained, ready. Right. To okay. Yeah. Organization. So we were taking people from academia with, with, you know, um, you know, PhDs and and people straight out of their their, their mm. degrees in in Ireland and and training them. But we were, I mean, we were coming from academia ourselves. I mean, it was yes. three of us at the time, with no industry experience. So the, the whole thing was was really a, a a real learning curve. And and you know, we we really. I suppose that that went into the kind of hiring process. We wanted people, of course, who were smart and intelligent. But but a big part of the interview, it didn't matter if they had no relevant experience because we didn't expect them to there, there, mm -hmm. there wasn't any any of that sort of environment that existed um but somebody that could come in and that could tell us whatever their scientific story was in a compelling way we knew that that was going to be important in terms of right. building a team that can you know that can advocate and so then before just before we were acquired by Pfizer I think people in Wyeth felt well there's this little team that are on a university campus they are going to be so easy to you know, to just why would why do we need them? Let's get rid of them. You know, it's 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 the logistical challenge to have mm. them. So luckily, we were moved on to the large Wyeth manufacturing site in in Dublin. And while again, I mean, that was another culture shock and and change for us. I think ultimately it was it was a fantastic opportunity for us. You know, to yes. to learn. You know, it's great that we can make these things in the lab, but actually we have to think about how it translates into a you know. 250 liter bioreactor um, or a 10,000 liter bioreactor, yes. you know, so that, that for the first time, I think that was another really big step in, in our learning is, is, you know, how do we think early on about, is this going to be a drug, not from the biology perspective, because we've kind of got that bit figured out, but are we going to be able to make it? Are we going to be able mm -hmm. to, how productive is it going to be? You know, what are the sequence liabilities that might let you know lead to bioprocessing problems downstream and you know so so that was it was a good opportunity but it also brought a big challenge that you know the manufacturing site were worried about getting product out they weren't they didn't really care about what probably to them at the time seemed like a group of students just messing around in the lab. <laughs> so it was weird from the academic side people thought yeah it's big pharma we moved on to the manufacturing site they thought we were university students yes we yeah. were always kind of in that, that sort of outsider um environment and, and that was really critical i think in in the development of the team in on the manufacturing site was really 
to be able to tell the story this is why this group is important this is what we're doing this is how we impact imagine and that the sort of story we, we really built on and tried to get people excited about was the idea that something we discovered in our lab in Dublin would one day come back to the mm. site in Grange Castle to be manufactured and wouldn't that be amazing and people got super excited about that idea and so yeah yeah you know you start to learn how important the story is so understanding who the audience is you know what you need from them how you can help each other and 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 then how to communicate that in a way that that gets them excited too i suppose yes and, and there may be several ways you can answer this next question and and we've probably touched on one of them and it might be what you've just said <laughs> um, um but through i guess through your career where you've you've been an academic in in ireland and in italy um, worked in a big pharma company, worked in biotech, um, and seen lots of different elements of the industry. If you were, if you were, I'm sure there's lots of different things that you've learned, but if you were um, talking to someone who was earlier in their career, who was starting out, um, is there, is there one thing that stands out as kind of advice that you'd give or something you've learned that you've been, has been particularly important from a career perspective for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think um, <clears throat> communication, obviously, yes. is a big one. Um, and I think still today, what, whatever the environment you're in, I mean, you know, thinking about trying to spin an idea to, to an, you know, potential investors, I mean, the, the, the question is, is, is why, you know, why is, why is this story interesting? Why are you making this drug? Who is it going to help? What's going to be different? So learning really about figuring out what's important, you know, stripping everything back, being able to, you know, everybody talks about the elevator pitch, but I mean, I think that's a really clever way to do it is to mm -hmm. force yourself to tell your story in a really concise way that can be very compelling. But that story yeah. has to change for the audience, depending on who that audience is. So understanding that I think is critically important. It's the same for everything you do, thinking about sending out CVs, you know, what is the job? Who's going to read this? What what are the important things? And, and instead of giving it out to multiple different life science recruiting teams, you know, you, you want to really think about who you're yeah. sending and how to tailor it for the scenario. So I think communicating in a meaningful way is, is probably one of the most important things. I think also for me, I mean, you know, I always felt like a little bit, you know, like being a journalist was a real disadvantage. You know, I always felt everybody else knows not just what they want to do, but whose lab they want to do it in. So right, when okay. I was thinking yeah. about what am I going to do next? You know, I've just got my results. I have no idea. I have no plans. You know, I, I should be much more organized. And other people were thinking about this particular professor's lab they were going to in this particular university in the US or whatever, you know, but I think what's always been important is that, you know, whatever, you know, routes you end up taking along the way, there's always massive value in every situation, you know, whether it's scientific and why my scientific experience in Italy was fabulous. And we published some great papers, you know, and we did a lot, I learned so much, I think in value to, to my own personal development, I think, you know, the, the outside of the science was, was really the most important thing. So I think mm. whatever opportunity that arises, it may not be on that path that you think you should be on, but it will bring value what and, and you have to do your best to identify what that that value is I think you know so yeah. keep an open mind about opportunities and and also you know feeling like you know there's 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 value in applying for something that you think you know you may have only 30 percent of the tick list that they're looking for because I had pretty much very well very little <laughs> in my, that job you know um 
with with Wyeth originally, and you know, I ended up getting it. So I think yeah. keeping an open mind and in, in in what an opportunity might bring you, and and keeping an open mind when you're you know thinking about applying for things, you know. But I I think the communication piece for me probably mm. has the most being able to tell a story and understanding who the audience are. I think is the most important. I, I think is yeah. Me. Whatever career you're in, I think that's important. And I think sometimes as a scientist, it can be more challenging because you're so involved in the work you're doing, right? You know everything about it. Yeah. You know all the detail. It's sometimes hard to to realize that the audience doesn't. Um, they don't care. They don't care. You <laughs> yeah. care. You know, and yeah. actually, you know, my, my brother is an academic. He's a neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have lots of fun conversations about the merits of our careers, you know, and yes. I think as things have evolved over the years, we can both really appreciate, you know, the value of each other's um, situations. But very mm-hmm. early on, when I was in Italy, and I was so engrossed in this particular project around this receptor and individual amino acid mutations and structurally what it meant, I went to his lab. We had, I had this opportunity for some reason. The urokinase receptor was was you know of interest in some of the neuroinflammation models he was looking at. So we said, wouldn't it be great to work together and publish a paper right. together? And so I ended up getting this travel grant and went over to his lab. He was based in Southampton at the time in Hugh Perry's group, um, and I was introducing the project to the rest of his team. <laughs> and for the first time, I was like, oh my god, there's blank faces, no questions, nobody cared because they're interested in disease models they're interested right. in the whole animal and the response the biological response you know in the whole animal so so they didn't really get it or care and mm-hmm. that was a really valuable lesson for me i think i'm telling them the wrong story i should be telling them backwards you know this yeah. is what's important for you this is why you should be interested so that was the first real example of not having a clue not really yes. researching who my audience was and, and and what would have been of interest to them so yeah i learned mm. to pretty early on I would say that's good I think it's a it's a really critical lesson um Orla this interview has absolutely flown by <laughs> thank you so much for joining us um it sounds like a really exciting time for for granular and for ultra human eight and we wish you the best of luck with it and uh we'll be keeping a close eye thanks Tom pleasure to talk Thanks very much for listening. Careers in Discovery is sponsored by Singular, helping you to build a brilliant biotech company. Biotech leaders spend far too much time, money, and energy on hiring and people issues. Head to www.singular-biotech.com to learn how you can recruit and engage your team more effectively so you can focus on developing medicines, treating patients, and saving lives.